listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. Well, hi, my name's Mark, if we haven't met. And we're continuing really a sort of large scale series called Come Back Stronger which asks the question of when we emerge from this lockdown, when we can meet again like we used to, how will we come back from this period, which has been like a a night that has fallen upon us? And we've been looking really following the the journey of Jesus as he has been in that in-between period between his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and then his pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon all flesh, the church, humanity, you and me. And so last week we celebrated that moment called Pentecost. And it was fantastic to hear the feedback of people as God moved. And we're just going to linger here for a little bit more of a moment in that sense of what does the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father and then the pouring out of his Spirit mean for us Next week, Sarah is going to look at this, particularly around what does this mean for the church? But I just wanted to stop and just, I guess, spend some time, I guess, addressing something which I think is really pertinent for many people. Ever since COVID-19 has begun, there's been this huge disruption in the world. All of us have felt this. It's affected everyone. It's been this global event. But in a sense, there was cultural upheaval before this moment happened. We saw that over the last few years in the world and even in the last week around the world, we've seen more upheaval. The wars in places like Syria and Yemen continue. Now with the added threat of COVID-19 coming into those places where those who are already suffering are suffering even more. We see tensions on borders between places like Turkey and Greece, China and India. We see the terrible injustices that are happening in the United States and then the resultant upheaval in that country. When we look at this moment, it is filled with so much historic weight. And in the midst of this, there's this pressing into this renewal that we know God has for us. And so I know many of you at this moment, as your usual patterns have been stopped, as the world seems to be on pause, but also deeply shaken at this moment, there's this sense that we want God to move. And so when we talk about God moving and His Spirit being poured out, as we spoke about last week, there's this tremendous excitement that comes with that. What does it look like when God pours His flesh out upon all people? But that comes to intersect with the reality of the lives that we live. For many people, the desire of their hearts is to see God move in that way. And sometimes there seems to be a disconnect between the promise of what Scripture paints for us and the reality of how we experience that as individuals. And so what I wanted to do today is just stop. And if you're someone who is worrying that you're going to miss out on this moment, you're someone who's worrying that you want this change, but you're not seeing it in your internal life, if you're someone who desperately sees, wants to see God move in the world, to see these problems that we're, we're seeing transformed, but you feel there's a gap between expectation and reality, I want to linger in the scripture today and ask the question, what does Jesus' ascension, what does the pouring out of the Spirit mean for us? 
I want to do that by turning to Scripture and I want to look at the book of Ephesians, which also gives us this insight into this heavenly reality that, that intersects with the earthly reality in which we live. Let's turn to Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Notice the past tense language. You who were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live. We have this past tense reality that something has profoundly changed in our spiritual makeup. But we also then have this present reality that the enemy, the evil one, is at play in the world, influencing still. There is a battle here between past and present. Continuing on, all of us who also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Again, there's this interplay between past, a dwelling amongst a certain people. This is not that these people have got up and moved somewhere else, gone to another city, but they're talking about a previous way of life. Paul here is talking about a previous way of seeing the world, seeing yourself, but that a radical change has occurred. There is a border which has been crossed here, which is not necessarily physical. Paul goes on. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. So we were dead, but we actually now have been made alive. It is by grace you have been saved. Grace is a free gift. It's not something that you can earn or do. So we were dead, but we have been made alive. And this has been done by an act of grace, by God in his mercy. And then this next verse relates to what we have been exploring the last couple of weeks. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming age he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and is not from yourselves, not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works that you can pull off by yourself, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which are prepared in advance for us. Just to sketch this out, going back to the images we used last week, we had, or the, and in the last two weeks, we had that image that here is this series of events that happen in the Gospels. And all of them point to a revelation of who Jesus is. But they also point to a revolution, a, a, a revelation of who we are. So here we had the reality that Christ ascended after 40 days, after teaching the disciples, Christ ascended. But what Ephesians is telling us 
is that ascension, and this is my first point, that ascension is our ascension. That ascension is our ascension. This is a key point that you can see and grasp it as a theological truth. You can grasp this as a good bit of Christian doctrine and it doesn't penetrate into our souls. And I believe at this moment, in this cultural tumult that we're in, it is absolutely clear to me that God wants to deposit and impart truths in His people. And if we're going to come back stronger, we're going to come back stronger in Him. And to come back stronger in Him, there is a deep and vital and relevant and pressing truth that you need to grasp. His ascension is our ascension. I want to put up another slide here which shows this, that when he was raised up, we also have been raised up. Now, I don't know how you are feeling at this moment in time. You maybe are watching this live stream after trying to get the kids to actually just sit for a little bit. Maybe you're being distracted. Maybe you're literally watching this and there's a bunch of other sounds in your house. Maybe there's a sense that you're watching this alone and maybe the, the loneliness of weeks now of lockdown has got to you. Maybe you're now in your coronavirus groove and this is the new pattern, but you're looking at the news and you're worried about what's happening in the world. Maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking about last week and this call for the Spirit to move and you hear that call, but there seems to be a gap between that and your reality. When Christ ascended, you ascended with Him. That is a heavenly truth that intersects with how we are living now, even when it doesn't necessarily feel it. And what we need to understand is just as Christ ascended and we ascended with Him and then Christ poured out the Spirit, that this is the great plan that God has for your life. So we have these two moves. The first one is ascension. Christ ascends to sit at the control rooms of the world and we are invited to sit at his right hand. We ascend with him. That is who you are. Your truest identity is that you sit at the right hand of the Father who in his kindness, in his loving mercy through an act of grace has sat you in the heavenly places. That's your inheritance. That's where you're going. That's who you are now, even if that truth has not penetrated how you think, how you live, how you operate. And then we have this secondary move that we talked about last week where we had the ascension, but then this dissension, this this descending of God's Spirit, where the Scriptures tell us that Jesus ascended to pour out His Spirit. His Spirit is breath. His Spirit makes us alive. His Spirit animates what it is to be human. The great rupture that happens at the beginning of Scripture is when humans who were created to be the dwelling place of God rebelled and God left His sanctuary of the human heart. And the story that we've been following since the beginning of Lent is the story of God's strategy and action and return to again dwell within us. You are created to be a receptacle of the living God. You're his home. He does dwell. He desires nothing more than to dwell with you. That's why he gave his life on the cross. 
And despite our sin, despite our rebellion, as an act of undeserved grace, we get the gift that he dwells with us. The second point we need to grasp is that the Spirit descends to inhabit his true home, us. So why, for so many people, does this truth not land? Why does there seem to be this gap between that biblical truth and how we feel and how we live and how we act? After World War II, there was a strange phenomenon for a number of years in Southeast Asia, in places like the Philippines, where there were rumors that out in the jungle, there were still Japanese troops continuing to fight a war which now was over. The Japanese government had signed a treaty with the Allied forces. Japan had been defeated. The fascist government of Japan had fallen and a whole new regime had begun. The Japanese army was transformed from an army to a self-defense force. And Japan had actually begun one of the most incredible turnarounds of a country from a country heading in a completely destructive and toxic direction to a country which is now one of the world's great, safe, prosperous democracies. One of the most peaceful countries on earth. Yet still in the jungle, there were troops continuing to fight for the old regime. One of the most famous of these was a man called Hiru Onada who actually did not surrender until 1974. The war ended in 1945. He kept fighting by himself, hiding out there. He was still loyal to a regime which had fallen. This is a picture of him handing across his ceremonial sword in an official surrender to the then president of the Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos. There was even another two troops who were found, two Japanese soldiers who were found on the border between Thailand and Malaysia, who eventually surrendered and stopped fighting around 1990. These troops are called Japanese holdouts, driven by a loyalty and a reality which no longer exists. And just as there were some Japanese holdouts in the jungles of Southeast Asia continuing to fight for a regime which has fallen, many of us have holdouts in our inner temple, in our soul. Many of us are defined by a sense of self which no longer is relevant. Many of us are defined who have given our lives to Jesus, been saved by Him with an act of grace. And yet we're still fighting for the old regime, loyal to an emperor who has fallen, living under the rule of a, of a nation or a kingdom which doesn't exist anymore, which has actually been transformed radically. The language that we saw in Revelations, this past tense language, is past tense language of who we are. You are no longer unlovable, you are lovable. The God of the universe gave his life for you. Whatever you think and feel about yourself, the truest thing about yourself is that you, in fact, are loved by God. Not only loved by God, but actually lifted up to the right hand of the Father, where He pours out His riches on you. 
And the scripture tells us that we are God's handiwork, that he has a purpose for us. Your life is not meaningless. You are not alone. You are not worthless. You are not hopeless. You are loved by God. Yeah, we sin. We rebel. We've messed up. But when we kneel our knee to Jesus and give our lives to him, we're instantly brought into a new kingdom. Some of us need to come in from the jungle. Some of us need to hand across that sword. Like soldier honor that I did. Recognizing that you're fighting a war that's actually lost a long time ago. Norman Grubb said this. The self must be released from itself to become the agent of the Holy Spirit. Onoda went back to Japan and I think he became a bookseller. He then entered into this completely different civilian life. The role he was playing was profoundly changed. And the role that you are playing needs to be profoundly changed. When we realize that we're fighting for a war that is over, fighting for this sense of self, which is now irrelevant in the heavenly reality, which is the truest reality in the world, we in fact then realize that we've been put to a different task to be agents of the Holy Spirit. Augustine of Hippo in his great classic Christian book, Confession, said it this way. So just as God ascended and descended, he says to us, come down from your heights, the heights that we scale to in human pride when we're trying to fight a war for the self, which has actually been lost. He says, come down from your heights, the heights that we try and ascend through human striving. For then you may climb and this time climb to God. And this leads us to the last point. That we follow Jesus. We ascend with him and just the Holy Spirit descends is poured out. We must descend. We must descend in order to ascend. This is the upside down kingdom that undoes the wisdom of the world. That's foolishness to humanity. This is what it looks like in our illustrations. That we are lifted up with Christ. But there's this weird sort of, as we're lifted in the heavenlies, what this will feel like in the earthly reality is sometimes like a descent. There are moments when God has done profound things in me. But I'm reminded of who I am. And there's this strange movement happening where God has brought something to my attention that is a fleshly attitude, which is actually stuck in myself. I find a a holdout still fighting, a soldier in my soul still fighting for a kingdom which has actually been defeated. And this is brought out to me and then I've gone into battle. Sometimes it's fasting. Sometimes it's confession and repentance. Sometimes it's this deep hidden battle. And what that feels like from an earthly perspective, that just feels like a descent. But it's this weird almost pulley system that when we are ascending and stepping into the spiritual man or woman inside of us, the physical, the fleshly man or woman is also descending at the same time. I love it how Reese Howells, the great Welsh prayer and intercessor, said it this way. He began to realize that in his discipleship journey, The best decision he made is that he began to side with the Holy Spirit against myself. 
Now, this is one of the most difficult things for us as Western people. To step into being an agent of the Holy Spirit, to be a dwelling place for God, to be filled with his presence and to take that into the world, it's one of the biggest taboos, one of the great idols of our age. In other ages, they bowed down to emperors or gods. The idol and emperor that we bow down to is ourselves. See, the world understands that many people are broken. The world sees the effects of sin. It sees how humans struggle and and we go into self-doubt and we go into self-hatred. So the answer, particularly for the last 30 years, and this has been in many ways the educational framework that so many of us have grown up with, is that in order to deal with the broken, sinful human, you actually need to raise your self-esteem. If you don't like yourself, you need more self-esteem. So there's two ways we go about this. The first way is that humans are social animals. Humans find a sense of meaning through comparing themselves to other people. So very quickly, there's these two things going on in our social networks. The first one is people love to relate. We love to have friendships, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, all of us in some ways, and this has been made very apparent during lockdown, still have to reach out to people. So there's this part of us that's built for relationship, created in God's image. We reach out to other people. But then under that, there's often this subterranean thing happening at the party, at the Zoom meet, on Instagram, in the workplace, in some mums catching up, just people competing in a sport somewhere. There's this underground reality where what people are looking for is a hierarchy of comparison. That holiness, that hurting sense of self-worth, that place which God has vacated when we sin or when we're holding out like a soldier whose army's been defeated and we feel terrible about ourselves, we then look for solace when we compare ourselves to other people. Pride only works when there's other people around. If you lived on a desert island by yourself, it's very hard to be proud because who are you comparing yourself to? Self-hatred is also a game of comparison. And what happens is this biblical sense of ascent and descent then gets turned to this horizontal game where we look left or right to find out who we are. But the problem is if you improve yourself, you can then find someone who's always better than you at something. And what you do is you end up living in this continual prison of comparison. Tim Keller calls it the courtroom. You're continually on trial. Everything you do, you go to that party, who spoke to you? What did you say? Were you the best dressed person there? Did you have the smartest opinion on that thing? Did you have that opinion on that album that all those other people were speaking about? Like, it's just endless. What does your body type look like? What does your job say? What are your achievements doing? Where are you traveling to? All of this in a sense, has been put on pause in many ways for a moment during the lockdown, but then has emerged in new ways. How are you doing lockdown really well? How many kilos have you lost on your lockdown workout regime? Did you learn Spanish in lockdown? Humans cannot but compare horizontally. The other thing that we do is that we look to other people to build this sense of self, 
But then the other way is to try and put it into ourselves, to speak ourselves up, to give ourselves the self-confidence. And this is this human ascending. And so humans get stuck in this thing of either, whether it's pride or whether it's self-loathing, both are connected to a social reality outside of ourselves where we're continually comparing ourselves to other people. And into this, the reality of what God says is you are caught up into this new reality, which is actually disconnected from this game of human comparison. The truest and most important thing is that actually you are raised to the right hand of God, that he loved you, that your sinful self has died. All of that stuff is the old regime. That is the Japanese soldier fighting for a regime which has fallen. All of it doesn't matter, although it seems really pressing and relevant. But the sense of duty that the Japanese soldiers fighting in the jungles year after also felt pressing and relevant, but it wasn't. And so this great message, I think one of the most prophetic words written in one of the biggest selling Christian books in the last 30 years was written by Rick Warren. It's the first line of his book, The Purpose Driven Life. And it says this, it's not about you. That seems harsh. It is so fantastically freeing. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment your peace of mind, or even your happiness. We're getting some deep Western heresy here. It's far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know why you are placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by His purpose and for His purpose. To find out who you are, you've got to forget who you are. To get your life, you've got to give up your life. Jesus shows us the way to the cross where Jesus gives up his life. We then see this process of giving up his life then leads to the resurrection, the ascension, and the pouring out of his spirit. Many of us get stuck at that first place because every cultural message around us, from schools to consumer items to both left and right wing, all of them saying, it's all about you. It's actually about God. It's actually about the king on the throne. The truest sense we get to find out who we are is not looking inside at who we are, at our endless self-gazing, which is just looking into a void. We find out who we are by looking to him. Timothy Keller says it in this way. This is true humility when it begins with God. The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself. Not needing to connect things with myself. It is an end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. God, on the seventh day after creating creation, rested. Now, resting seems like recreation to us. We live in 
a mostly peaceful world here in Australia where we then have rest on the weekends. But in the biblical sense, rest also meant that you had defeated your enemies. That you weren't at battle. And so God had defeated the forces of chaos in the world, which was symbolized by the sea at the beginning of creation. The Spirit had hovered over those waters and the world had been born as God spoke light into being and the world and the universe and the creatures and the humans. We need now to sit under the Lordship of God, to sit in the rest, where we actually don't need to think about ourselves. We need to set our sights on God. Colossians 3 verses 1 to 4 says this. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. What he's not saying here is think just about some celestial realm that seems so far away and it's distant versus the material realm here, which is real and built with science. What he's actually saying is that the heavens and earth overlap. Heavens is actually breaking into earth. We live in that overlap where God's kingdom is breaking out in the world and God's kingdom is the realest and truest thing there is. And that kingdom says that you have died with Christ but been raised with Christ. That you don't need to pay the price. That you are loved. You don't need to worry about comparing yourself to other people because the creator of the universe gave his life for you and loves you. That is the essential fact. That is the bedrock of who you are. And because we can sit in that, it doesn't matter what people think about you because God loves you. And this is moving from the gaze of the crowd to the gaze of love. The singular gaze from the God of the universe. So this is not setting ourselves in some interspatial dimension. This is actually setting ourselves on the truest thing. You sit at the right hand of the Father. And he pours his kindness out on you. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Hiddenness. This is a season so many prophetic people I know have felt the sense that at this moment there's a great hiddenness happening. The world increasingly became a world of broadcasting and putting ourselves on display continually. At this moment of COVID-19, so many of us have found a sense of hiddenness. Heck, the church is, in a sense, hidden at the moment from doing what we usually do. We can't have the control that we used to have. Our lives are hidden. We do not need to prove them to other people and broadcast everything because the truest reality of who you are is hidden with God. And that is so important to understand. God will give you things when you step into his heavenly hiddenness. He will impart truths of who you really are before him. There is a bunch of things. Sometimes you may have had a bunch of things in your front garden. You put out some chairs there. You've got the hose. You've been doing some work in the garden. And you've got to bring things in from the front garden where they've seen. There's a bunch of things people need to bring in from the front garden of their homes into behind the closed doors. I'm not talking about hiddenness for, for nefarious means. I'm talking about bringing them from the public earthly sphere into that secret place with God. 
Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. You know what this means? In this life, you don't need to have glory. His glory is your glory. There is a lot of glory stealing going on in this world of taking glory from God. And I hate to say it, there's an enormous amount of glory stealing from Jesus happening in the church. You don't need to build a life of glory. God is glorious and we simply have to worship him. In the human, there is a dwelling place built for God. We've walked the journey of God's plan to refill that place. His death on the cross, his taking of sin on his shoulders, his defeat of death and sin, his rising from the grave, his teaching the disciples, appearing in his resurrected body, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, He's pouring out of the Holy Spirit. That Spirit pours out. That is a return to your heart. You as the living temple of human being. He wants to come home to you. You need to give up your sword. You need to surrender fighting for a kingdom which is done. You need to lay down the idol of me and pick up the idol of being an agent of the Holy Spirit. Set about a mission in the world. We do not need to look any more inwards. We now need to move outwards and be the people of God. The next move of God, the renewal that I believe is to come, also will be the defeat of the idol of self. So lay down your swords. Jesus said, I knock. You just simply have to open the door. In Revelation, it says he'll come and dine with us. There's a knocking. If you're quiet enough, he wants to come into that hidden place and be with you. Let's pray. God, we ask for your spirit to come. This is a prayer we pray every week. But today we pray, come Holy Spirit, come back to your dwelling place, our hearts, our innermost beings, that hidden place where our deepest fears, worries are. We give them to you. Spirit, Come. Fill us now. You may, at this moment, realize that you've got some holdouts, some soldiers still fighting battles for the regime which no longer exists. And just in these moments, it's actually time to hand across that sword, to end the battle to surrender. Lay down before the new ruler. 
Spirit, we now lay down our resistance to Jesus. We want to be filled. We want all of us filled by all of you. Spirit, we surrender self-worship. We surrender self-introspection. We surrender putting everything through the lens of self. We surrender putting ourselves as an authority continually of causing you to live up to our standards. Instead, we simply say you are God and we are not. And we want to follow you. Father, I just want to pray for freedom from the trap and imprisonment of continual comparison. Take our eyes from left to right and cause them just to gaze upon you, Jesus, right now. Help us to realize it doesn't matter what anyone thinks of us. No insult, no compliment matters. All that matters is what you did on the cross for us. What you poured out at Pentecost. Father, as you fill us with your Spirit, I pray that you will begin to send us out in Jesus' name, away from introspection. Build now a new remnant of people in your church. Who are not self-focused, but God-focused. Who are not stuck in endless self-examination, but actually who pick up the great charge to take your gospel out to the nations, to the world, to proclaim what you did, to live for your kingdom, to be people of holiness, hiddenness, honor, justice, patience, perseverance, kindness, gentleness. Father, free us from ourselves so that we can be truly free. And just as we empty ourselves here, we just pray that Spirit that you will fill us. Fill us with your Spirit. That we be may be carriers of your presence in the world. In your name. Amen.